Hi, I'm Brent Pearson from Sydney, Australia, and I'm passionate about adventure motorcycle riding, videography, and exploring. You can see some of my videos on my YouTube channel if you just search for Brent Pearson. Welcome to the Real Riders Podcast. My name's Simon Josie, and if this is your first time here, welcome and thanks for listening. As the tagline says, this is a podcast about filmmaking motorcyclists and motorcycling filmmakers. As you heard at the top, Brent Pearson is my guest today. He's another YouTuber, but one who initially began his working life in film and television production before changing careers. I first contacted Brent in early January, and after that, threw myself into consuming the material he's posted to YouTube. I have to say, that kind of research is never a chore. If you're interested in upping your video production game, I strongly encourage you to take a look at all of Brent's tutorial videos on YouTube, and I mean all of them, because it's interesting to track how his thoughts have changed over time with regards to things like action camera settings, as he's constantly experimented and learned new things. And of course, you must watch the great adventure bike videos that Brent has made from his many trips in Australia, as well as the USA and Iceland. So, we've reached episode six. When this podcast was first conceived of, before I'd undertaken my first interview or even reached out to potential guests, I thought I might start with a limited series, perhaps six or ten episodes, and then assess how things were going. Since then, I've adjusted my thinking, mainly based on my success to date in securing really interesting guests. Okay, I might not be threatening Joe Rogan, Smartless, The Rest is Politics, or even Mark Marin in the podcasting charts, but I have been able to find and connect with a diverse crowd of motorcycling filmmakers and filmmaking motorcyclists willing to share their knowledge and experience. I have no intention of stopping now. I've got more interviews lined up, and I'm actively targeting new guests. I hope that doesn't sound threatening. As you might already know, this podcast has always been about my guests, not me. However, if you would allow me, I'd just like to give some updates, which, after a mere six episodes, I think is entirely feasible. I may not be able to do this so diligently after a thousand episodes. Firstly, just in the last couple of days, episode one guest, Thomas Hansen, has made a reappearance on Instagram, and that seems to have sparked considerable joy in the Instagram circles that I loiter in. Welcome back, Thomas. You can find and follow him under the username underscore T.S. Hansen. Episode two guest, Mac McFadden, has at last been able to get out and start riding again as the weather improves. He's been playing with a 360 camera and posting new material to his YouTube channel, Classic Rides. I really like what he's doing with voiceover narration. Sounds like he was trained at the BBC to me. Runa, from episode three, has been in New Zealand for about a week, touring on a Norden 901. Obviously, her trip is really interesting to me, as I'm a Kiwi. And also, because we talked a lot off mic about this trip, when I interviewed her back in early December. As I record this, she's making her way down the North Island and will soon be crossing Cook Strait and exploring the South Island. She's posting to Instagram as she goes, and then I guess we can expect to see the YouTube videos once she's back in Norway. That is, unless she decides never to leave. I'm hearing New Zealand's having a pretty good summer. I hope everyone has had a chance to watch the final episodes of The Off-Road to Monaco. The first series created by Nick Jacobs, otherwise known as Project Biker, and my guest for episode four. I was kind of sad when the series came to an end this week, but I know Nick is working on his next series, which he shot over the end of your holiday period. Sam Pacheco, my guest from episode five, has also been in touch this week, recommending I take a look at the YouTube channel of Landon Bischoff. I've subscribed and will be setting some time aside to dive into the videos Landon has produced. Perhaps you should take a look too. Before we get to my chat with Brent, there's one other thing I'd like to do, and I promise I won't do this every episode, but perhaps by now you realize a considerable part of my day and my life 
revolves around podcasts, whether creating them or listening to them. They are my constant companions, and so I thought I might draw your attention to some of the other motorcycling podcasts which are currently on my playlist. This motorcycle life is now on indefinite hiatus, but there are 55 episodes in the archive for you to listen to. Creator Bruce Philp interviewed a diverse roster of motorcyclists and motorcycle-adjacent folk, and clearly put a lot of thought and preparation into his interviews. Chasing the Horizon is a podcast by, for, and about motorcyclists, brought to you by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America Club. I've uh, only dipped my toe into this podcast, but they've released 146 episodes, and note their content is not exclusively BMW-related. It has what I would describe as a very North American vibe, but perhaps that's your thing, so maybe have a listen to it. Ride and Talk, the BMW Motorrad podcast, is definitely focused on BMW motorcycles and those who ride them. It's fronted by Sean Thomas, one of BMW's brand ambassadors. And no, they don't just talk about the GS and M1000RR models, in case you were wondering. Episodes are released infrequently, but personally I don't mind that, because it's a daily struggle to get through everything I want to listen to. Adventure Rider Radio claims to be the longest-running adventure motorcycle and travel podcast since 2014, with over 500 episodes released. They also release the monthly Adventure Rider Radio Raw show via a separate RSS feed, which takes a roundtable discussion format amongst regular guests. As a podcast technical producer myself, I have to say their production values are top-notch, and obviously their profile allows them to attract an impressive list of guests. Front End Chatter, or FEC, is an English podcast hosted by a couple of veteran journalists. hope they're not offended by that term. Lots of talk about new bikes and answering questions raised by listeners via the always overflowing mail sack. It's uh, an engaging mix of English banter and solid technical knowledge, or at least I'm impressed, though that's not saying much. The Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast has been around since 2015, and their back catalogue consists of nearly 350 episodes. Now, I have to confess, I've only listened to episode one, and right now I'm trying to figure out how to make more space in my listening schedule to sample more of the episodes. So I, I can't really tell you much about them, but at least you're aware of them now. The Motorcycle Archives is new with only a couple of episodes released so far. Now, look, episode one is not an easy listen due to some audio production issues, but episode two is much better, and note that each episode appears to be the raw interview that forms the basis of a short video documentary. Those video documentaries can be found at the YouTube channel of the same name and are put together very professionally. I'd like to give a shout out to Chris Mooncast, which is a German language podcast about motorcycle travel and adventure bikes from Chris in Austria. Look, um, I'm, I'm trying to learn German at the moment, and one day I hope to fully understand this podcast. Currently, I understand about 40% on a good day, but thank you, Chris, for helping me on my German learning journey. A timely reminder that podcasts are not only an English language phenomenon. Last, and certainly not least, we have the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast, or TAMP, or TAMP, which I have to confess is a current favourite. I think I should credit Thomas Hansen again for directing me their way, though I don't know if I should mention Thomas again, because he seems to be getting a lot of mentions today. Uh, by the way, Thomas was a guest on the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast way back in January 22, which was Season 2, Episode 12. Now. I think even the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast would admit that season one is a bit ropey, as they were clearly learning their way with the podcasting technology. But it seems to have been podcast gold from season two onwards. I'm working my way through their back catalogue of almost 100 episodes. It's everything you would expect in a podcast hosted by a couple of northerners, Clive and Noel, from England's Lake District. Banter, abuse, mockery, oh, and some useful information, I guess.
They seem to be well connected to the trail and adventure motorbiking scene in the UK, if not globally, and they are able, therefore, to pull great guests. Episode 100 is about to drop as I record this, and the listenership is waiting to see who they've lined up for this milestone episode. It's got to be Charlie and Ewan, right? Okay, I feel I've done my duty to the motorcycle podcasting community. Please don't angrily at me if I've missed off your favorite podcast. Perhaps instead, send me a polite message drawing my attention to it. As always, if you have the time and inclination, please consider rating or liking The Real Writers Podcast in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube. This will help other listeners find the podcast. The podcast has accounts on multiple social media channels, and I post to them whenever new episodes of the podcast drop. I tend to be most active on Instagram if you want to message me. Nevertheless, please feel free to repost, reskeet, and retweet to help get the word out there about the podcast. A list of the real writers' socials can be found in the episode notes. Righto then, finally, let's get to my talk with Brent. G'day Brent, welcome to the podcast and thanks for being part of today's episode. How's it in Sydney today? Thanks, Simon. Yeah, it's um, it's a an overcast Saturday morning, but it's um, quite a pleasant, comfortable temperature, and it's quite quite a nice respite from the Australian summer. Okay, let's get right into this. I'd like to talk about your origins, particularly your broadcasting and, and filmmaking origins. According to your YouTube bio, your first career was was in television and filmmaking, and you you trained in camera work, sound, and editing. Was that part of like a cadet scheme at the ABC? Yeah, it was. Um, so so when I finished school, I knew I wanted to go into film and television as a profession. I first went to a, a technical college at where I studied, um, it was called a, a Television Operations Certificate of Proficiency. I then went out and worked in regional television for a while. And then I was accepted into, yeah, it was a cadetship, a traineeship that the ABC were offering and um, it was pretty difficult to get into, but it was, a, it was an amazing training program. It was three years, and it was a mix of sort of classroom training and theory, as well as rotating around the different sort of production facilities of the ABC. And so, yeah, we learned we both 16-millimeter film, which was still being used at the time for drama and news, and we also um, learned electronic um, so we had, yeah, film and, and electronic, and then it was camera work, sound, and editing with the three production disciplines. So it gave me just a, a really great um, bedrock of, um, of, of knowledge to uh, build on. And, and were you expected to um, specialise after that three-year period in one of those disciplines? Yeah, yeah. Um, so through the final year of our cadetship, we were expected to specialise. So I specialised in camera work, and I... I then focused in outside broadcast. So I love being able to go into the, the outdoors and go out into location and actually, you know, set up and, and produce high quality um, video from there. And I think that's probably what I've carried forward into the work that I'm doing with the motorcycles today. That, that outside work, was that outside broadcast, live outside broadcast, like sport and stuff like that? Or was it a lot of news gathering? Uh, it was mainly um, sports and, and drama. So, yeah, we'd go out in location typically with um, either, you know, vans or big, you know, outside broadcast trucks, and we'd be doing everything from rugby, golf, through to opera, drama, you name it. And, and tell me, because I have a sort of a similar background, but only in the, in the radio uh, area, because I went into radio straight after school as well. And... Okay, I don't want to be impolite or anything, but I'm guessing maybe we're about the same age. Uh, was it was it still a, an analog world when you left the business, or had it already started to move into digital? It had already started to move into digital. Um, I, I still remember some of the earliest editing suites. There were kind of like million dollar edit suites, um, and at the time they called it random access editing. But yeah, when I started shooting, it was it was definitely analog when I started. But by the time I left the film and television um, industry, it had sort of pretty much transitioned fully to digital. Right. Yeah. I I think um, maybe the similar timing for me with um with with audio. I remember the first audio workstation I saw. I think it was from AKG, and it was like the size of a mini, and and it could do digital editing, which yeah. which was pretty amazing. I think the thing that I remembered is that I could slide the different channels around in time, which was the big innovation. That was like yeah. amazing. 
Yeah, 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 compared to the old multi-track recorders and things. Yeah, it was incredible. It, it, exactly. And also the fact that you could do things in a, in a non-linear sequence. You didn't have to do them in, in a linear yeah. sequence. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely a game changer. For sure, for sure. Um, why did you, um, why'd you, why'd you get out of the business? After a while, you know, after you do several years of outside broadcast, it starts to become a little bit routine. And um, around that time, that's when personal computers kind of really started hitting the scene. And I became fascinated with computers and computing and taught myself how to write business applications. And I just got sort of taken into a different pathway, um, which in a way is good because by then um, making video production no longer my profession, it enabled me to turn it into a passion. So my profession was sort of fueled more by technology and computing, but um, it was nice to revisit and, and bring video back into my life through combining it with my passion of, of motorcycle riding. So, so was there a bit of a gap between ending and you know, working in broadcasting to when you started making videos again, like for fun? Yeah, quite a long gap. I, um, you know, especially when I had a young family, you know, that tends to suck a lot of time. Um, it was only as my as my boys grew up that I started getting time back in my life. And initially, I got back into still photography. So for several years, I was pursuing still photography pretty pretty actively. And then, as I got into motorcycling, that's when I transitioned back into video. So yeah, along probably I don't know twenty or thirty years passed where I I wasn't doing a lot of creative pursuits, um, but then yeah, brought them back in. And and when you came back to the fully digital world in terms of making videos, what were the, the the innovations that really stood out for you at that time? I think especially when I started doing video, you know, the drones, like the especially the drone that I use, it's a fully autonomous drone and it can do things that um, the, the the more conventional sort of manually flying drones can't do. So that allowed me to sort of just bring in a whole new dimension to what I was doing. Also, just the action cams, you know, the GoPros and the, the DJI action cams have just come such a long way, you know, where the image quality is really high, the image stabilization is really incredible, um, uh, and just the durability is there. So, um, yeah, I think it was probably the, both the camera and the, the camera action cams and the drones would be the two biggest innovations that um, really captured me right in in one of in one of your videos and I, I was trying to find it again I, because i thought it was at the end of one of your videos it may have been in the middle but you state that you hope that anyone watching your videos is, is going to be really motivated to to get out there and try adventure motorbike riding yeah actually because i've just you know, I haven't just been watching the the, the 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 productions, but I've been watching the the tutorials that you create as well. One of the biggest impacts on me was actually I want to get out there and make better videos. Have and and what I wanted to ask you because because you've made a series or a multiple series of of production technique tutorials. Have, have you always wanted to to teach people and and share your knowledge? Because that just seems to be like a really big driver. That that's the impression I get. Yes, absolutely. You know, I loved, I love, you know, the nice thing about knowledge is you can, you can share it and give it away, but you've still got it, right? So there's nothing to lose by sharing with other people. And, you know, even when I was doing stills photography, I used to teach, I used to run workshops, I wrote books on photography. So I love learning and I love progressing. And then I love sharing it with others that want to go up the journey. And if I can make their learning curve a bit faster or easier, then it's it's quite satisfying and rewarding. So yeah, I you know I love that that aspect, and that's why I do spend quite a lot of time to actually make training and tutorials and things like that. Because I do you know it's great if you can take all of the knowledge and fun that you have and then give it to other people to enjoy as well. Yeah, and and one thing that I particularly like about what you've done with the YouTube channel is that you've progressively updated. Your, your findings, your views. In fact, just this week, I think you, you put out a new video about GoPro settings. And so it's really interesting if you watch it in a, in a logical linear sequence, as I did, old to, to new, and you see how you've been learning stuff and changing your mind about stuff, and it's, it's just constantly going on. And, um, you know, particularly, yeah, like with this, this latest one that you released, it, it's, been, it's been really interesting. I mean, has is, is that been deliberate that you – because someone could – take down those old videos and say, ha, oh, this is not interesting anymore because I've changed my mind. But I really like the way you've kept everything up there. Yeah, I've kept it up there because I think it is a sort of a, like a journey of discovery. And, you know, with the GoPro videos, what makes it tricky with the GoPro, you know, 
as I pointed out in the latest video, is there's no exposure information. So you're kind of trying to work it out from the image itself. And, and sometimes you kind of come up with a hypothesis, you test it, you validate it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, someone points out and says, hey, Brent, here's a hack where you can now get exposure information on the GoPro and learn what it's actually doing. And so it is a journey of discovery. And, and yeah, I'd like, I want, you know, rather than just get, just have the end point, I think people enjoy going on the, the journey and seeing how the thinking's changed or looking at the videos and seeing the impact on the quality, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I've, I think also one of the things that I thought was quite nice about the tutorial videos is they're, they're not, it doesn't feel like you're trying to sell anyone something. You're just, no. you're just going through and you're also saying, look, there are other ways to do this, but this is how I do it. And, you know, follow along. I'm not trying to teach you how to use Premiere. I'm just trying to show you how I do things and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I thought that was, I, yeah, I watched all of them. I, I love them. They're great. Um, I'm going to get into trouble if I don't ask you about your motorcycling history. So I guess to start with, how and, and when did you get started with motorcycling? Yeah, when I was, uh, you know, when I was uh, young, like 17, all my first vehicles were all motorbikes. So dirt bikes, I had, I had an enduro bike, I had trail bikes, and I had road bikes. And so for probably the first seven or eight years, I never owned a car. And that's where I got my love of motorcycling. I moved to England and, I, and the weather and roads were less conducive. So I stopped motorbike riding then, had a family, didn't motorcycle ride for ages, but again, got back into it probably about three or four years ago now. And through my brother-in-law, he, he loved motorbikes and he kept taking me out on rides and, and I just got the bug again. And um, yeah, once my, my boys grew up and I had, the, I had some time, yeah, I've now gotten back into it. Yeah, for me, motorcycling is just a, it's just a passion. I, um, I now do have a car, which I use sort of begrudgingly, but whenever I, I want to go from A to B or have an adventure, it's always on one of my three bikes. And and do you, is it something you do daily? Like, are you a commuter or is it something that you keep, you know, in the garage, wait for the weather to be nice and take it out then? Yeah, no. So, well, I've just moved house and now I actually commute by ferry. So that's amazing. But before that, yes, I used to commute um, every day on my motorbike, uh, pretty much rain, hail or shine. I, I, you know, I don't mind a bit of rain. And, um, and then, you know, I would get out my adventure bike whenever I can. I'm always sort of either doing a ride or planning a ride. So, um, so it's, uh, yeah, I'm pretty active on the bikes. And now I've got a, I've got a little motor scooter. So I'm, um, you know, I, I use that for running around and doing all my errands and I'm, I love that as well. So, so, yeah, I guess that's the next question. What, what's in the garage these days? So I've had two bikes as a sort of staple. I've had my adventure bike, which is my um, Husky 701. And then I've had my road bike, which is my BMW R9T, which is just a, just a beautiful bike to ride. It's just a stripped down, kind of like a cafe racer. And for me, that's just like the essence of motorcycling on road. And then I just bought a little Vespa um, scooter for for plugging around town and zipping through the traffic. And, and I love that as well. Yeah. In, in earlier videos, you're riding a GS. And um, I, I guess you're, you've come to the school of lighters right now and that, and that the lighter bike is, is better for, for the Australian outback. Is, is that right? Yeah, look, I love the GS and I will get another GS. Um, but what I found was um, the GS took me into adventure adventure biking, but pretty quickly I realized that especially in Australia, the types of trails that we have um, and the types of trails that I like riding are more technical. So I like getting into the Victorian high country. I like getting into the Blue Mountains. I like getting up into, you know, the state forests where I'm not riding dirt roads. I'm typically riding twin track and yeah, I just I learned very quickly that that's pushing the GS way out of its comfort zone. And I'm not a great rider. I, I'm a very average motorcycle rider. So I found that light helps me and having a bike that's as capable as like the, the 701, it just helps me and makes it my riding much more enjoyable. And I don't you, I don't suffer anymore from, you know, what I call big bike anxiety, where I'm always wondering, is the track big bike friendly? And am I going to be able to get through? I now know that I'm on a a bike that's super capable, and unless it's kind of single track or hard enduro, I can pretty much get through anything on that bike. And, and your videos do such a great job of of selling the great outdoors in Australia as as a as a motorcycling destination. Um, yeah. What sort of restrictions are there? I mean, it seems you seem to have a lot of places to play. Oh, 
We are, you know, and a lot of people comment on my videos just saying how lucky we are. Um, you know, from Sydney, I, I'm right now, I can, I can take a ferry and I can be in the, the central business district in six minutes on a ferry. So I'm right in the middle. But within um, within within 60 minutes, I'm now out on, on trails. And then I can pretty much stay on dirt if I want to for months without, um, you know, hitting much, much sealed road in almost any direction, right? Obviously not the ocean, but but north, south or west, we've got just the most incredible tracks. So, you know, I'm planning a trip right now, which is a, a tour of Victoria, and we'll be spending nine days, almost 100% on dirt, doing a lap of one state. And that will probably be 1% of the trails in that state. So um, we, are, we are blessed with just incredible landscape and just um, so much incredible riding. It really is a... Um, an adventure bike riders paradise. I think the US is another country that I've been to, which has got similar, you know, if you go out into Utah or Nevada or, or a lot of Idaho, there's incredible networks of trails to explore. But Australia, yeah, it's a, I feel pretty lucky where, where I am to enjoy this sort of hobby. Sure. And is the best riding in, in the Southeast and, you know, sort of, should we say New South Wales, Victoria and, and South Australia? Is that where the best riding is? Uh, I would say it's, it's, I haven't, I've only, again, I've only scratched the surface of Australia. We've got great riding in New South Wales. I think Victoria has exceptional riding and so does South Australia with the Flinders Ranges. And so it's, I would say it's around, mainly around the edges. You know, you, there's a lot of riding out in the middle, but it's like big open desert, like nothingness for, for ages. Whereas around the edges, you've got high country, you've got Flinders Ranges, you, you've got um, just incredible undulating uh scenery which is quite um diverse yeah yeah no it um as i say you're doing a good job selling it to, yeah. to those of us who don't live in australia it's it's an easy sell i can tell you that <laughs> yeah um apart from the snakes and okay we won't talk about the snakes and the spiders that, I mean, that's the new zealander and me coming out you know that's the only part that terrifies me yeah yeah it's, you know what i would say uh in my life, I can probably count on one hand the number of snakes I've seen in the wilderness, right? So I, th I think it's like um, the the threat or the thought of it is much worse than the reality of it. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, I, I'd now like to, to talk a little bit in, in some depth about some of the, the videos um, and, and just some things that I've observed and, and just try and get your thoughts about them and, and try and discover how deliberate they are or accidental. The first thing I noticed when watching a lot of your videos is in terms of your shot selection, you tend to sort of rotate between lots of uh, drone footage and some POV point of view shots, but also a lot of what I would call a follow shot where a rider's sort of immediately in front of you and, and you've got them sort of framed as the main subject. And initially I thought, oh, um, why is that? Is that because Brent's chin mount is kind of sitting high? And I was looking at your helmet and trying to see where the, the GoPro was. And I thought, oh, it's more like a mouth mount or a, a nose mount. And I thought, oh, that's why we're not seeing much of the bike. We're not really seeing the handlebars. We're not seeing the instrumentation. We're just seeing the bike, the person you're following who's sitting in front of you. And then I started to watch your, your tutorials. And I realized that actually you've been a lot more deliberate about this, that in fact, you're creating what you call a, a cinematic shot. And, and in fact, you're trying to eliminate your motorcycle most of the time. What I wanted to ask, it's a long way of getting to the question, is is that something that you set out to do deliberately right from the beginning, knowing that you wanted to show a follow shot rather than a POV shot? Yeah. So you're right. I, ha I have two distinct settings on my GoPro. One of them is is wide, which is gets the handlebars and kind of makes you feel like you're on the bike. And then the second one is it's more a linear lens and um, more hyper smooth turn, you know, stabilization turned on, which also crops further still. Um, yeah, look, I I tend to, I think it's more interesting for people to watch someone ride than it is to watch the trail in front. So um, when you watch someone ride, you know, you're watching the way they're, they're balancing, the way the bike's moving and all of that sort of stuff. So generally, I like to follow someone and then 
let you know it's more about watching them and how they take the trail and and how they observe you know dodge things and things like that so i actually think that's more interesting than just watching a fairing sort of bounce up and down with handlebars on an empty trail um but i you know i will put in if i'm going down a, a steep or scary track or something like that then I'll, often i'll i'll stop or switch modes and i will capture my perspective of what it's like to ride this track but I prob- I'd say probably 75%, 80% of the time I'm in cinematic mode and I'm talking on my headset to, you know, one of my riding buddies saying, right, you ride in front, I'm right behind you, I'm here. And where, you know, I'm focusing on them as the uh, the subject. Yeah, I mean, because I was thinking, is this what we're used to seeing? Is this what we've been taught to see? And I was thinking about sort of commercials, what we see on, on television. Whenever you see a, a commercial for a car or a motorcycle, it's exactly what you say. You're seeing someone driving that or, or you, you see that the vehicle moving through its environment. That is a lot more interesting than if someone was you know, showing the steering wheel, as, as you say. And, and that sort of leads to my next point, which, is, which I think is really interesting because all the previous guests I've had on the show, they have a preference for riding solo when they're making videos and and you do the complete opposite i I would say in fact i would say that the group ride shots and 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 videos that you make it it's it's the group rides which is the the special source and Mm. and you know i don't want to get offside or anything here but but i would actually suggest that perhaps at least for me, I found the first Flinders Rangers series you made a little less compelling for that reason, because you didn't have that yeah. opportunity to to shoot people. You know, you you, you had a, a a limited range of shots that you could use. Um, how do you do the group ride efficiently? How have you achieved that? Because because what my previous guests have said to me is that yeah, I went out with my mates and and soon they realized that, well, actually it takes a lot of time to do all, all these shots, stopping, starting, setting the camera up, driving to the woods, the bike away, you know, all these things. How have you managed to make it so efficient? And was this yeah. something that you realized very early on or, or did you have to discover sort of through trial and error? Yeah, look, great question. And you're right, absolutely right. When I did that first Flinders series solo, that's probably about the only time I've really ridden solo. And I think it's much tougher to be interesting because, you know, you're by yourself and the shot selection, you know, it is just by yourself. But what I do when I ride with friends, I don't, so I don't do what a lot of people do, which is stop, set up a tripod shot, go back. Do, I never do that. So the way we capture it has very minimal impact on the trip and the trip dynamic. So, you know, yeah, I've got a GoPro on. Usually some of my other riders, they've got GoPros on now, so we actually get a couple of different views, which is great. I'll often have a second GoPro clipped on my bike to shoot rear-facing stuff. And again, I don't have to stop. I can sort of start and stop that camera while I'm riding. And to get variety in angles, what will happen if I go through over a big jump or something, I will say, hey, hold on, guys, just wait a second, and I'll just stop, and then I'll just turn around on my bike and I'll act like the tripod and I'll get them riding towards me. So again, I'm not slowing the group down at all. The only time I ever really slow the group down for videography is when I want to launch or retrieve the drone. Um, so I'll say, hey, hang on, guys, amazing shots. I just want to get this on drone. Now, the nice thing is I think a lot of the guys I ride with, they really love the videos and they love the finished product and they love seeing themselves in there. So, so they're actually pretty patient. And I can launch, my drone sits on my tail rack so I can usually have my drone on, launched, and in the air in probably about less than two minutes. And then once it's up, I'll typically leave it up there for about 10 minutes, and I'm riding. I'm riding with the guys, and the drone is following me anyway. So I have a two-minute sort of pause. We keep riding. I don't have to be stopping piloting the drone. I'm actually enjoying the ride with the guys, and I'm just controlling it from the beacon on my um, tank bag. And then it'll be like, hold on a sec, so we need to pull the drone a bit. We just find a spot, stop. Again, it's a pretty quick retrieval process. Zip it up and off we go. So I think um, even when I've done paid tours like the Iceland trip where it was myself and and Nick when we were riding with a whole bunch of others, I think they would all say, no, we hardly noticed. Brent's videoing didn't impact the tour dynamics at all. Um, So... Yeah, yeah. That that actually was going to be my next question because it's one thing to convince your mates that hey, it's a good idea to make make this video. But but I can imagine, yeah, you turn up on the first day of of like the Idaho BDR or the Iceland trip, and 
people you've never ridden with before and you've got all these fancy cameras and drones and, and you can imagine they go, oh, this is going to slow yeah. things down. But yeah. but it seems that, that that wasn't the case, yeah? It wasn't the case. And, and what I did is I would, um, at the end of day one, I would just actually bring out, you know, either on my phone or an iPad and I'd just say, hey, check out some of the shots I got. And I show them the shots at the end of day one and they go, wow, actually that looks good. And then I think it clicks to them that, Hey, this this could be a really wonderful memory of of the trip. You know, we've got essentially an official videographer that's doing that. So, um, I, I, yeah, as I said, I've done a couple of paid paid tours. That one I did the Idaho BDR with, and, and but again, it's not like I'm saying stop. I want to set up a tripod and, and let's all go back. Let's, let's do a couple of takes. I don't do that. It's minimal disruption because of, because I'm shooting run, run and gun and. When they see the benefits, you know, they do a little cost-benefit analysis in their head and they realise the benefits well outweigh just pausing for a few minutes to drop a drone down or launch a drone. Yeah. Um, Just talking about your mates, so (laughs) wasn't it great that your mate HD was kind enough to to fully document the failure of his drive shaft? Yeah. That, that was on the, the, you know, for people who want to go watch it, it's the, the second Flinders Rangers series, which is which is excellent. Um, great bit of drama at the end. And, yeah, HD, he filmed the whole thing, and it was just, like, excellent. Yeah. So my question was, have you have you got your mates now in Australia at least well-trained up to, to do this, to think the way you do, and to, hey, something happens, capture, capture, capture? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, HD, he actually loves shooting as well. So he, he does incredible drone work. So often when we go out, he takes the DJI drone and all of the cinematic location shots HD shoots. I think he gets a real buzz out of it. And now when he sees his photography coming into the the edits, I think he gets as much pleasure as I do. And so, yes, when there's – he was out riding by himself and when there's drama, he, he naturally is like, I'm going to pull the GoPro out and I might as well record it in case Brent wants to put it in the, in the final edit. So – yeah, him and I've got another couple of my mates also enjoy it. So, yeah, they're all kind of getting trained and and I think they like the fact that they can help contribute to a video, which is a great, you know, memento of the ride. And I know a lot of the guys go back and they'll look at rides that we did a year ago or two years ago and, and it's just it's just it's like looking back through an old photo album, right? It gives you a lot of joy as it brings back the memories from that ride. So, yeah, they love it. Absolutely. And have you convinced them to to follow your recommended GoPro settings and things like that? Yeah. Um, so, and, and it's mainly for um, just to make it edit easy in the edit. So they always, you know, usually now at the start, especially if it's a big ride, like a multi-day ride, they'll pass me the GoPro and I'll just have a quick check of their settings just to make sure it's all set so that it's um, consistent in the edit. Um, but yeah, they're more than happy to defer to me um, on things like settings. Okay. So we, we talked a little bit about the drone footage and, and I think we, we need to talk a little bit more about it because... The Sky DO2 drone, it seems to be a real star of, of your video productions. How, how did you become aware of that particular product? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a good mate who's a cinematographer. He shoots a lot of car commercials and, and things like that. And I said to him, I said, I'm looking at getting a new drone. And he told me about, about this drone. He said, I've heard about it. It looks pretty amazing. So I, I did a, a ton of research. And then finally, I decided, yeah, that's what I'm going to get. And I spend quite a lot of my time in the US so I could buy it um, from the US and get it delivered to the US because they don't sell it in Australia. Unfortunately, they don't sell it anymore. They've, they've stopped production. They're, the company Skydio, they kind of had three divisions. They had a consumer division, an enterprise division, and a military division. So they've now shut down their consumer division. So you can no longer buy those drones at all unless you get them on the secondhand market. But um, yeah, I, I bought it and I tested it while I was in the US in terms of its autonomous flying. And uh, there's a video that I posted of my first test runs, and I kind of just decided it's going to be, I'm either going to crash this drone on the first first ride out and never use it again, or I'm going to put it through hell and have the confidence that the drone can do what I want it to do back in Australia. And uh, it turned out to be the latter. Absolutely. I mean, I remember watching that video, and there's, there's power lines or telephone lines right next to the road where you and I'm just like, what are you doing? I'm feeling mm. ext- you know cold sweat just watching what you're doing with this thing, and um, yeah. it, it's just remarkable how it just seems to be able to sense the the, the lines and 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 navigate around them. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's it's a it's it is still the best autonomous drone out there, and I know DJI are making improvements with Active Track and things like that, and I'm keeping an eye on it, but it's still. 
I don't think it's got a patch on the on the Skydio yet. So I'll keep enjoying flying my Skydio until something better comes out, or until I end up, you know, destroying it in in some you know pond or lake or water or something. And I don't I don't want to get you on the wrong side of the law here, but like I've got a, a drone, quite an old DJI drone, and to fly it here legally in Europe, I had to get a you know a license basically. And this idea of autonomous flying, I, I, it didn't even occur to me as a possibility actually. And and I'm and I'm looking and watching your videos and thinking, I, I don't think I could legally do that in Europe at all. What what's the what's the legal situation in in Australia with autonomous drones? Yeah, um, I, I obviously the 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 rules and the laws are changing pretty rapidly everywhere. I try and stay up to date with them, but when I've looked at the the aviation um, rules here. They don't say anything about about autonomous drones. What they're talking about is, you know, you don't fly over roads, you don't fly over people, you fly these distances, etc. Interestingly enough, what, one of the things they have um, prohibited here is flying with goggles. Um, so I do have a, another drone, which is a, a, an FPV drone, and I'm not legally allowed to fly that in Australia. So um, that's banned. But I haven't spotted anywhere where they say you've you got to fly line of sight, so you've got to keep your eye on the drone. Um, and there's a bunch of other rules. And I'm sure after this podcast, a lot of people will tell me all the things that I'm doing wrong. But I try to, I, I really try to be pretty legal with my flying. So I don't fly in national parks. I don't fly anywhere where they post no no drones or things like that. I'm also pretty respectful. You know, drones can be bloody annoying. And um, so if I'm if I want to go and fly my drone and there are people there, I usually won't fly my drone just because I don't, you know, I don't want my fun to intrude on someone else's activity. And if and if someone tells me that, you know, the drones are annoying them, I'm, I, I will do my best to either land the drone or get the drone out of their out of their um, sort of line of sight so it doesn't bother them. Yeah, it's not much fun if you've got some dick who just wants to be a smartass and fly the drone and then talks about their their rights and that sort of stuff. I don't know. It's, 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 we all have to sort of share our enjoyment and not um, dominate someone else with just because you're following the letter of the law. Did you have any issues with with flying the drone in, in Iceland? Um, so I didn't. Um, there were a lot of places I wanted to shoot with drone footage in Iceland. Some of the waterfalls, they all had signs posted saying no drones. So I didn't fly drones there. But no, everywhere where I was flying the drone, it was just out in the wilderness, you know, and um, I didn't have any problems at all. And you mentioned the FPV drone, which you showed us in that second Flinders Rangers series. Uh, you talked about a shot um, which you ultimately didn't make with that drone. But but what does that drone do? Or what do you think it's going to be able to do that the Sky DO2 can't do? Yeah. Um, so I've actually got a second FPV drone, which is called a Nevada. And the Nevada has enclosed propeller blades. So that means that I can actually fly the drone quite close to people with much less risk. So rather than, you know, exposed blades flying out there, which are quite dangerous, this means I can fly this drone indoors. I can actually fly it and, and I can actually fly it close to people riding and and it flies much faster. So if I want, there are some shots which I still can't get even with the Skydio. The Skydio has got a, a maximum speed of about 57 kilometres an hour. And, you know, sometimes there's shots where you really want to try to capture What's it like when you're flying along um, a, an open desert track at you know eighty or ninety kilometers an hour? Well, the FPV drone will keep up with me that, so I can actually, if I stop, you know, I'll only take that little FPV drone on a supported trip, so I'll, I'll have it in the car. But if there's an incredible landscape and I want to get a shot where the rider is just flying along at eighty or ninety k, I will do that. I, I will fly with my goggles and and get the drone up close to the rider, so you kind of get this um, really interesting perspective they're the types of shots that i want to get and of course the other ones are where you're doing in iceland i did a shot where i kind of flew down a canyon up a waterfall and uh again it'd be pretty hard to, to fly at that sort of speed that close down in the canyon and just get those dramatic shots without um an fpv so for me that the fpv drone it's just a it's almost a, a slight gimmick i guess um i just use it occasionally and it's, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun to fly I really enjoy flying it, but I don't take it with me on my adventures normally. Just back to the Skydio 2, um, I think you take three batteries with you when you go. Is that right? Uh, two batteries now because I lost one. <laughs> I, I was going to ask, how long do the, each of those 
each of those batteries? Like what fly, flying time are you getting out of the drone? I get about 25 minutes out of each battery, which is pretty good. Um, I can recharge the batteries while I'm riding. So if I'm going to an area where I know I'm going to be doing a lot of drone footage, I'll have the charger going plugged into the bike. And so while I'm flying, I'm always charging batteries. And that, that will allow me to almost, you know, shoot continuously off the drone if I had to. Right, right. And in terms of, you know, talking about Iceland again, obviously you had the drone there. Um, did the conditions there affect the equipment in any way? Like, did you did your flying time reduce or anything like that because of the colder weather? We had, it was more rain and wind. So the first few days we had, um, we had a lot of wind. We had a couple. We had a couple of really windy days, and so I actually didn't put the drone up at all. Um, the less so the cold. You know, cold does impact um, lithium batteries a bit, but it actually um, warmed up to the point. It's not like it wasn't like um, being in skiing conditions, or you know. I think most of the time we were riding in uh, sort of like fifteen to eighteen degrees Celsius. So it, no, it didn't have any significant impact on battery. Um, a little bit of fogging of um, of the lens sometimes, and that's about it. Right, fifteen to eighteen sounds quite quite nice for for vigorous riding. It sounds perfect, actually. Yeah, it was. It was actually great. Uh, um, and and you're planning to go back to Iceland this year, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, um, so. The, the video that I shot in Iceland went went kind of nuts. I think last I looked at it, it was about 1.1 million views. And I spoke to the um, the tour operator, and he said all of his tours for 2025 or 2024 are sold out. So every single tour for the whole year. And I think he said to me, he said, Brent, I think at least 40 people that booked in the tour cited your video as reason for doing that. Yeah. So um, he basically, you can understand, he's now, hey, what? Come. he wants me to come back and do the West Fjords, which I'm keen to do. So he's giving me a complimentary trip. And obviously, I'm probably one of the best marketing tools he's got. He's also now started tools in Africa. And he wants me to come down to Africa and do that. So um, so who knows, maybe next year, I'll go and do Africa. But uh, it's interesting. I, I, usually, I, don't do, I don't do any sponsorships. I don't take any money for any of the videos that I want. But I think this is a pretty good, um, pretty good trade, right? Give me a free tour. I'll video it the way I want to video it. I'll say what I want to say. But, um, you know, if you're operating a good tour, then you're going to get some pretty good publicity out of it. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I do have one sort of kind of geeky, nerdy uh, question, which which I want to ask. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's about frame rates because one thing I noticed is that when I think in your first uh, tutorial series, uh, you were – you were editing at 23.976 frames per second. Mm -hmm. And I've always been kind of interested in this in this topic because when I first got into home video, and this was late last century, that's how old I am, um, the first camera I got was 25, it was PAL, I got it in China, it was 25 frames interlaced. And then the next camera I got a couple of years later um, was able to do 25 uh, frames per second uh, progressive. And I understood it, uh, this is what I remember reading at the time, is that the thing about progressive scan and, and PAL at 25 frames per second is it's very close to traditional cinematic footage, which is shot at 24 frames per second. And so there's this idea, and this was the holy grail at the time, was to try and achieve a film-like look. A cinematic look, yeah. Yeah, using, using, using video. And that's why... It was said that that um, PAL twenty five frames per second was 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 the best thing to go for. Um, in your later videos, I noticed you were editing at, at twenty nine point nine seven frames per second, and yeah. and I just wanted to ask: so why why the change? And and yeah. please go as deep as I may not be able to keep up, but please go as deep as as you as you feel you want to to explain. Yeah, sure. So so yeah. You're right. Cinematic frame rates are 24 frames per second. And often when people want a cinematic look, they adopt a lot of the cinematic rules of, oh, I've got to shoot 24 frames per second, which is kind of what I started doing when I got back into it. But what I notice is if you look at the frame rates of, of especially action cams now, right, you look at them, um, not so much the lower ones, right, because, you, you know, some it, it might it can do it at 25 or you can do it at 30. But when you start looking at the higher rates for like slow-mo, it's typically then 60 frames per second and 120 frames per second. Uh, and what I found pretty quickly with some tests is that if you don't work in clean multiples, then it's kind of like your image becomes choppy. So if you're shooting in 25 frames per second and then you want to go and, and do slow-mo, 
right, then 60 frames per second slow-mo versus a 25 frames per second, it's not neat maths, right? So two times 25 equals 50, not 60. And so it starts to drop frames every once in a while. And that drop frame sort of creates this, this jittering or the shuddering. And so I actually found that it's much smoother if you shoot in a, in a base rate that's a multiple of your slow-mo speed. So if I shoot at 30, and then my camera is, if I, my base editing's at 30, but I'm shooting at 60 frames per second, then I can drop every second frame and it's perfectly silky smooth and I'm getting 30 frames out of it. If I want to go to 60 frames per second and have two times slow-mo, again, it now just incorporates every frame and again, it's beautifully silky smooth. So that was the main reason because I do like to incorporate slow motion in my, in my footage, but I wanted to avoid, so I like to shoot at 60 frames per second for most of the stuff. But if I'm then trying to edit at 25 per, um, frames per second, it's just it just becomes a slightly jittery looking um, edit because it, it, it's literally dropping a frame every every second, whatever whatever the maths turn out to be. So, and I actually found that a lot of the traditional cinematic rules don't apply for motorbike riding. Motorbike riding is a fast; it's a fast action sport. There's a lot of you know I'm not getting a, a person walking down a dimly lit alleyway. I've got trees flying past me. And I found that 30 frames per second, it just, um, I don't know, it just looks better for the higher speeds. I think they, you know, even sports, like sports work better at, at higher frame rates. Um, and then, so that's kind of why I moved from 24 to, um, to 30. And also, you know, when I'm trying to get motion blur, for example, I don't always follow the um, the, the standard 180 degree shutter rule of, of necessarily doubling. So um uh, so there's a few I, I've just found, and it's more through testing. I, I'm someone who kind of will strap a GoPro on and I'll go and do run after run after run with different settings and I'll look at the, the footage and then I will make my own observations. So I like to do my own testing rather than just read because there's a, what, what you've probably worked out is on YouTube there's a lot of experts out there and you know you don't know whether what they're saying is right. It's just what they believe. I like to kind of try to, make my knowledge based on my own experiments so that I've proven what I what I I'm saying or relaying, not just regurgitating someone else's. Yeah, and I and I think as I was saying earlier, I think that's somehow been the value of the fact that you've documented your findings and you've you've kept everything up there as you've gone through and learned new things and discovered things and, and you're sharing those steps, um, those iterations as 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 time goes on. Extremely, extremely valuable. Um, what's your experience been with with publishing to YouTube? I mean, YouTube's great in the sense that it doesn't cost us a thing to to publish. But yeah. has it surprised you the the response? Um, can you explain why the Iceland video was so popular, and and maybe others were not as popular? Not to say that they weren't popular, but but not as popular as the Iceland video. Can you explain that to me? I mean, is it simply yeah the title algorithm working i mean i've got no idea yeah so so i'll just i'll answer that 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 question secondly but first thing in terms of how have i found it publishing to youtube um first thing to understand is i i i've never set out to build a channel so i've never set out to, and this is not my job so the way it started i started just publishing videos for my friends and then you know i started getting subscribers and when i hit a thousand it's kind of interesting someone said to me hey brent you can now monetize this and i went and I, I, to be honest, I wasn't that concerned about the money side of it. But, but the funny part about it, the reason why I monetized it, it was actually for the benefit of my wife. And what I mean by that is my wife started nagging me. She's like, Brent, you're bloody spending all your time in front of the computer editing videos, da, da, da. And then one day I hit 1,000 and I, and I, and I said, turned to her and I said, do you realize I've now got 1,000 subscribers? And she said, well, what is, so what? And I said, that means I can, now, um, I can now monetize it. And she goes, you can monetize it? And I said, yeah, it means that YouTube will pay me for that. And so then all of a sudden it's like, well, you better get out there and shoot another video and you better. So that was the reason why I monetized it. Now, um, what's interesting is if you look at it, if you look at when you publish to YouTube and, and you say, do you want to monetize it? Yes. You can actually say, you know, where do you want to play ads? I don't, I never play ads through the middle of my videos. So I may have accidentally in the early days, but now I only play at the start at the end. So I never interrupt a video with, with an ad. And I just don't, I, I don't want to dilute the experience. Um, and for me, the, the, the money that I get, I just put back into drones or toys or cameras and that's it. You know, 
I've got a real job. Real job pays the bills. So, so I don't have any pressure to build a channel. I don't take any sponsorships. I don't want to turn my channel into, you know, some glorified um, ad. I just want to have fun doing it. Um, in terms of the the algorithm, now I I don't know, I don't know why like why the Iceland video took off, and I don't understand the algorithm well enough. Um, but I'm always trying to I'm always trying to um, just make my videos better and better and better. And I'm trying to I, I don't want them just to appear appeal to adventure bike nerds. I I want them to appeal to people who've never been on a motorbike and go, you know what? That looks pretty cool. Maybe I maybe I might get that. I haven't thought about a motorbike or if I'm a road rider, maybe I'll try some off-road stuff. So I'm trying to make my videos um, interesting, even to non-adventure riders, and and make people want to go and see some of the the world that I, I'm lucky enough to see on two wheels. A, a big feature of of all your videos, and I and I checked earlier today because I I went back and and checked that this was the case with your early videos as well. Um, is the narration that you provide with with yeah. the videos and. How did you decide early on, I, I need to do this, I think it's really important? Um, so I think it's part of, uh, you know, if you just go and throw pictures up to music, it's like you don't, you don't have a story. I think I, what I try to do is tell a story to make my videos interesting. And I think it is the storytelling, which is what makes a video, you know, engaging. If you sit there watching 20 minutes of someone, you know, with heavy metal music with a with a you know GoPro shooting out the front, it becomes boring pretty pretty quickly. So people, it's a story that brings you in. Now, when I go on an adventure ride, I often don't know what the story is going to be because often the story unfolds as part of that adventure ride, which is why I never try to narrate my videos while I'm riding. I just try to shoot. And then it's only after at the end of the adventure I kind of think or, or as it's unfolding, I'm starting to think about, oh, this this is the story I want to tell when I cut this video. So these are the shots that I may want to support the story and things like that. But um, but yeah, I, I will just sort of mix mix music with narration at the end and just really try to explain some of the things or some of the dynamics that maybe not be evident in the visuals. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I noticed because you you were you were actually telling us what was going on, but. I, I like it. It's it's nicely paced and it's not excessive, but it's constant. It's it's always there. It's um yeah. It's a, it's a very important feature, I would say, of the videos, particularly as you say that target market of people who may not know exactly what's going on and need a little bit of guidance. Yeah. 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 And it's just you're right. I think everyone finds their style, and that's just yeah. You know, I've had some people say, "Oh, I hate your music. I just want to hear that roar of the engine and all that sort of stuff." And it's like that's that's fine. There's plenty of channels that do that, but everyone has to choose. I have had other people say, love the music, love the narration. So you're not going to please all the people all the time. You just got to find, that's the style I like to produce videos and it's just very natural for me. So yeah, I'll just keep doing it. Uh, do you have any concerns about becoming stale in terms of, I mean, you said a few minutes ago that you always want to, you always want to improve. Like, Where are the areas that you're trying to improve? Like, What are you constantly working at? Yeah, so lately the biggest area I've been focusing on is my maps, right? I think that maps are a really important part of telling the story. You know, if you're watching people riding in the bush, but you just, you know, I, I like to know where are they? And often I'll hear someone someone will say, um, you know, oh, we're on this track and I'll actually stop, I'll bring up Gaia or something and I'll actually put in that track and I actually like to see where they are and that helps me to understand. So I, I, I think that... Um, that maps and, and the display of maps uh, is a really important part of helping people understand the adventure you're going on. And I don't know if you saw the one I did in the Victoria High Country recently, but, you know, we actually got stuck in the bottom of a valley. So I actually had maps that turned into 3D maps so you could see the topology and stuff like that. So I, that's the area that I've been, you know, going up a pretty steep learning curve just to try to make um, map, you know, display I love maps. I'm a map geek, and I just think that you know, if I can, if I can tell better stories with the use of my maps, it helps people really understand where I am, what I'm doing, what the challenges are, and that type of thing. So that's one example. I've just bought a, a, a different action camera. I've got a DJI Action Four now, and um, it's got some capabilities that I really like that the GoPro doesn't have. So I'm going to give that a try. I, I just bought some different microphones. So I, I'm I'm always sort of trying to. Just see if I can continuously lift the bar. I'm not happy, ever happy with just staying status quo. I want, I want, 
I want to make my videos better and better. And that's my personal learning and development. It's not to try to feed the channel or anything like that. It's just like, I, I want to look back and just say best video I ever made, you know, and mm. hey, I topped that one. I, I, I'm happier with the production quality of this next one. Um, have the guys at the BDR begged you to come back and make another movie of, of, of their stuff? <laughs> uh, well, so I used to do the, it's a fu sort of funny story. I, um, the, the BDR rides I used to do with a, a guy called Neil from uh, a touring company called Backcountry Expedition. So that was my first sort of training when I bought my GS. I, I, I learned through him. Amazing guy, amazing trainer. Um, I rode my first BDR with him, which was the Idaho BDR. And then I went out and we, uh, I think it was the, um, I, I think, I think it was the Washington BDR that, um, we were doing a scouting ride for the BDR then. And, um, I broke his BMW. I, I, I put a rock through the um, crankcase and lost all the oil. So um, he basically banned me from riding his bikes anymore since then. He basically, uh, he said, you've damaged more bikes than any other person. And I'm like, I didn't drop it. It's like a, a freak rock came up and punched through the bash plate into the thing. So it's like, I, you know, I think your bike's cursed, mate. It's not my, my riding. But um, he uh, he felt that I, that my riding style was maybe a bit too hard on his bikes, and that's why I stopped doing that. But now I've got I've still got some friends over in the US, um, and I'd like to ride more BDRs definitely. So th th there's so many places though, but you know I only have so much time off. So between Iceland and Australia right now, um, I'll do Iceland. I may do Africa next year. Um, I I'll get this a lot of the BDRs. I'd love to do all the BDRs in the US. BDRs are pretty easy. So I, as I get older. That, that can be something that I can do on a GS or a bigger bike. Um, so I'm probably, while my body allows, I'll probably try and do some of the more technically demanding rides now. And then as I get, yeah, a little older and crinklier, I'll probably do some of the easier rides. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a good plan. Just a few final thoughts. In terms of your own filmmaking, who, who do you take inspiration from? Like who, and, and who would you recommend or encourage others to watch? From an adventure motorcycling perspective, yeah, I think that's that's yeah. probably a good place to start. Yeah, there's there's a few guys that um, like, and I like them all for different reasons. So uh, there's a guy in Victoria called Nurb. Nurb, um, Brendan, he's he's great. He's just um, an amazing rider. He gets out a lot, and so I love exploring through his eyes. There's um, Adam Ryman produces probably the best quality um, uh, adventure motorbiking videos. Uh, he's an incredible rider. Um, his production quality is amazing. The, 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 uh, the only the only issue I have with Adam is you know sometimes just it's his style kind of grates on me a little bit, and it's because he's such a good rider. Sometimes it just feels a little bit you know I, I feel like I'm almost um, not worthy to watch his videos because I'm 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 I can't do wheelies for like you know 300 yards and things like that. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a guy called Joe Ryan. Joe Ryan is, I think, a, a photographer, cinematographer, and he's out there on his Enfield Himalayan riding around Australia, but he's, he shoots really beautiful videos as well. You know, he's, in some ways, he's a bit like me. He, he's not a, he's not a great rider. He's relatively new to the adventure world. So he's kind of like a newbie coming in, but yeah, he just, he's, he's a good storyteller and he just shoots beautiful videos. So I like watching, um, his stuff. Uh, there's some of the, the the adventure riding videos that I that I look at. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I I, I don't like that the heavy doof doof music and I don't like the the channels that sort of really pump or hype stuff up. I just love yeah good stories, good stories and beautiful scenery and and places that inspire me to kind of go yeah I want to do that. I want to do that ride. Last question, and this has sort of become my habit now to to ask my guests. Does filmmaking enhance or diminish the pleasure of a motorcycle ride for you? For me, it enhances it. Um, I always say, I have a saying that I'm lucky I get three times the enjoyment out of adventure riding. And that's because I love to do the map planning and the, and the, the planning of the route. And I'm a map geek, as I said. So I really enjoy spending hours and hours and hours poring over maps, discussing with locals in forums and trying to work out routes. That's the first part of my enjoyment. The second part is obviously the ride, and I don't let the video production spoil the ride. So for me, you know, it's – and sometimes I'll do a ride and I won't even turn the cameras on. It's just like, no, I don't feel like it today, so I'm going to enjoy the ride. But then the third part is the post-production. You know, I get to relive that ride and I get to just enjoy the the creative side of that well after it. So, yeah, I get – I'm lucky I get 3x the fun of most adventure riders. 
Thanks so much for being my guest today, Brent. Uh, what can we expect from you next? Yeah, my next ride is at the end of March. I'm doing a nine-day trip around Victoria, and then I've got Iceland in June. They're probably my next two big rides, and uh, I can't wait. Sounds great. I look forward to to watching the, the videos, which I'm sure will result uh, after you get back from those trips. Cheers, Brent. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Simon. <laughs>